This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Natasha Mitchell, joining you for Science Friction's summer series of some of your and our favourite episodes from the past year. Today, a very big name in artificial intelligence, Dr Timnit Gebru. She's an internationally renowned computer scientist and electrical engineer. She's best known for her robust research into the ethical and social consequences of AI, artificial intelligence, and how the algorithms that drive so many of the apps and websites and digital products that you use day to day now are riddled with dangerous biases with big consequences. In 2018, Google employed Dr. Gabru to co-lead and build its ethical AI team with Dr. Meg Mitchell. But at the end of 2019, Tim Neat was sacked by Google, sparking an international outcry with some 7,000 industry colleagues, including thousands inside the company, signing a petition protesting her departure. It would have been so much more difficult without that kind of support because then they would have felt even more emboldened to double down and continue down the road of, you know, attacking me or smearing me, which they've done to other people. So I am extremely grateful for it. A few months after that, Meg Mitchell was also fired. Their experience raised concerns about big tech's capacity to scrutinise and stop the harms caused by what some see as its entrenched white boy bro culture, and also by its commercially lucrative algorithms. Tim Neat has since launched DARE, the Distributed AI Research Institute, which she calls a space for independent, community-rooted AI research free from big tech's pervasive influence. She's also co-founder of Black in AI, and she's my guest in this episode. When I was growing up, I went to an all-girls school, so I never felt like I couldn't do engineering or I shouldn't or that it's for certain kinds of people. I just never felt that. Tim Neat grew up in Ethiopia, but when she was 15 years old, her family was forced to flee the country to escape persecution during the Ethiopian-Eritrean War. Her parents were Eritrean-born. They arrived in America via Ireland, and that's where Tim Neat really started to understand how racism and sexism can conspire to censor people's potential. Once I arrived in the US, it was instant. And I started trying to figure out, is it because I'm a woman or is it because I'm black? You know, the racism was instant. I mean, it was just very, very blatant. They would not want me to take certain classes. They would say, I'm going to fail these exams or, you know, like my very first day in school, the chemistry teacher said, so he was going through what they were going to cover. At the end of the class, I said, oh, I've covered all this stuff. So can I move a level up? And the guy says, you know, I've met so many people like you who just come from other countries and they think they can take the hardest classes. If you took the exams that these people take, you would fail. Unbelievable. How did you respond? How I responded to it was I decided not to take chemistry. Um, And so then I took this biology class. I remember it was this Egyptian-American woman, an Egyptian immigrant, She was probably, you know, top-notch scientist in Egypt, who knows, 
And here she is teaching. And I could see, you know, she was also frustrated probably. And so she didn't treat me like that. She was very encouraging of me. So I took that class. But there were other classes where I had to fight back. So physics classes, calculus class. And I had one of the highest grades in the honors physics class. So if you're going to come and tell me that you think the advanced placement class is going to be too difficult for me, that means you think everybody else who got lower grades than me will be fine, you know? So I was trying to reason with the guy, like, why would it be more difficult for me and then not these other people? Like, I don't understand. And how do you make sense of that entanglement of sexism and racism at that age, just as you're trying to work yourself out in the world? Yeah. It would have been interesting to tell that chemistry teacher at the end of your PhD on computer vision at Stanford Artificial (laughs) Intelligence Laboratory, look at me now. And in fact, what emerged from that PhD in computer vision, you paired up with another researcher, Joy Bullenweeney, And together you conducted this incredible study that has had an explosive impact. You called it Gender Shades and you discovered the extraordinary race and gender biases in commercial facial recognition software. These are very powerful products that now have a kind of ubiquitous role in society. But what did you discover? Yeah, this was Joy's master's thesis and I was advising her on it and when we looked at these automated facial analysis tools that were available for anyone to buy and use, right? No restrictions whatsoever. All the ones that we analyzed had much higher error rates for darker skinned women and almost no error rates for lighter skinned uh, men. And the darker the skin, the higher and higher the error rates for women. And uh, we published this work in 2018 And it definitely made waves. (laughs) Let's give people a sense of the high stakes consequences of that kind of bias in these kinds of products. There are a number of them. So if you just look in general, let's look at medical tools that automatically analyze your photos of your skin and try to determine maybe if you have some kind of lesion, what it might be cancerous or not or something. You know, there are a lot of people are working on those kinds of things. And now imagine if those things have really, really high error rates for darker skinned women and the darker the skin, that it almost appears random chest. You know, that is automatically baking in something that doesn't work for most people in the world, something that only works for a small minority. So that's one. But then when you look at specifically things related to face recognition, Mm. This is something that is used for a lot of surveillance. This is something that is used for all sorts of things. Just recently, we had a, a recent in, in the US, there was a first known case of a black man who was arrested because a facial recognition system misrecognized him. You know, he was wrongfully arrested. Of course, he was cleared, but there was this um, Wired article that talked about how his life was ruined by the process. It wasn't just that, oh, he was wrongfully arrested. Everything is great now. Okay, bye. I can just go back to normal. His entire life was disrupted, his job, his family, etc. So that's the kind of stuff that can happen, right? But um, what's interesting is in response to this work, people sort of latched on to the idea that what it means to be fair and what it means to work on a fair system or technology means to create something that works well for everyone. So they kind of fixated on, let's say if it's face recognition, you should make the error rates low for everyone. But 
what Joy and I were not advocating for, like equal surveillance of all people, <laughs> we don't think that you should have these kinds of systems. So a lot of people sort of jumped into that conclusion without even analyzing whether or not we should even have these systems. Now, the issue was, one of the issues was that these algorithms that drive these facial recognition products, well, they're being trained up on data sets that are full of white male faces. So they were misidentifying black female faces simply because they didn't recognise them. They were invisible to them. As a result of this study, though, IBM and Microsoft changed their algorithms on the basis of what you were doing. Some cities have banned the use of facial recognition tools by law enforcement authorities, for now at least. Does that give you some satisfaction about the impact of your work? I, I do think the impact of the work has been huge because even in the context that I was talking about, you can see the evolution of the way in which people responded. For instance, Microsoft initially said, oh, we've changed the algorithm and now the error rates are much lower for women of darker skin. And fast forward to um, 2020, after a lot of work, other people's work, when there were worldwide protests, Black Lives Matter protests, at that point, Microsoft decided not to work on face recognition until there's further regulation. IBM pulled out of research even on interface recognition. And Amazon put a moratorium on selling their uh, face recognition um, system called recognition to law enforcement. And we had been asking them to do that for a long time. But instead of listening to us, they were persecuting Black women who were speaking up, actually. And it spurred a lot of movement in this area in terms of other researchers working on it, in terms of legislatures looking into it, in terms of bans, as you mentioned, and just a coalition of people working on analyzing the harms that these systems create and stopping them. Let's step back briefly to get a glimpse of your experience of stepping inside a big tech company and what it was like for you as a black woman doing ethics research inside Google. In fact, you were the first ever black woman to be employed in a research scientist role by Google, which I find astounding. In 2018, it had taken them that long. And they couldn't keep me. (laughs) They couldn't keep you. I was the first ever black woman to be a research scientist at Google. And then I recruited another one. So neither of us are there now because it was just so miserable, right? And well, they fired me and and she left. What were you hired by Google in 2018 to do? What work did Margaret Mitchell invite you to co-lead with her inside Google on this ethics work? Meg Mitchell had created a team called Ethical AI Team with scrapes, with fewer resources, but she had amassed a coalition of people at Google. And so she invited me to co-lead the team with her. Because it's never a straightforward decision, is it, to make a decision to work on the inside of a dominant culture that you are critiquing and that you are a minority within. So did you enter with a a mix of hope and trepidation, perhaps scepticism? Most of it trepidation. (laughs) It was so many red flags from the very beginning. And I almost did not uh, sign my offer until Meg actually invited me to co-lead her team. So I thought, at least I can work with Meg and we can maybe create a safe environment in our little team 
And then we can have some amount of power to change things. And, you know, I didn't have any illusions about steering this big ship that's Google, but that was kind of how I got into it. That was kind of my hope. And also there was a, a team in Ghana, the first AI center in Africa that they were creating. And I was really excited about, I you know, I thought I definitely need to help with that in keeping with what I care about in terms of increasing the number of invisibility of Black people in the field of AI. And so I was hired to do just what I got fired for, right? Um, analyze the impacts of AI technology and figure out how to minimize the negative impacts on society. And also just do AI research in a way that is beneficial to us and not cause harm. And did you manage to do that work successfully while you were inside its doors? You know, I think that we were able to move the needle, but it was a battle. When I analyzed the amount of headache and harm that I endured in order for the slight sort of a needle, I don't think it was worth it, but we were able to, for instance, we were able to grow our team into one of the most diverse teams at Google. We were able to make it normal to hire people who don't have a degree in computer science or related fields in order to work in this kind of um, area because we said we need to have an interdisciplinary team. So we hired the first social scientist to be a research scientist at Google in our team, Dr. Alex Hanna, but she also <laughs> left. And we started trying to come up with strategies of how to get them to change. So we said, you know what? We have much more respect as researchers on the outside, outside of Google than we do inside of Google. So let's publish a paper. And if the paper gets traction, then maybe they'll be shamed into actually actually doing something, right? So that's what we did. And so we just had to come up with all of these different strategies for survival. What particularly were you wanting Google's management and Google's leadership to do differently in relation to the enormous investment that that company has made in machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, perhaps amongst the biggest investment in the world? It's... um just to spend a little bit more resources to make those products safe and not jump into research that just seems like an arms race. So our last paper that I got fired for was about this technology called large language models. And all of these people, Google, OpenAI, um, Microsoft, Facebook, they're all racing to have these these models that are just larger and larger and larger in scope. So that means they take more data to train, more compute power, more everything, just larger, you know? And what do these large language AI models do? I gather they drive Google search, for example. They're an underlying technology in a lot of things. They use them in machine translation to translate from one language to another. They use them to rank queries of search they use them to have these, I think, question and answer boxes, you know, in these autocorrect kind of things that you see in your email or autocomplete, those kinds of things. And we just were very alarmed by this, I want bigger, or mine should be bigger kind of motive for working on these things. And so what we wanted to do is just get people to think about the potential negative consequences of having working on these large language models and just slow people down a little bit. We spend a good portion of it discussing the data that is used to train these models. So that is very similar to my work on gender shades, right? What 
data do they use to train these models? They look at all of the internet. So there's this illusion that if I have huge data sets that consist of the entire internet, then I'm going to have a diverse set of voices represented. But that's actually not true. That's an illusion. So we talk very extensively about what kinds of voices are represented on the internet, who is left out, not only because many people don't have access to internet, but also moderation practices of a lot of these websites that are used to train large language models. For instance, Wikipedia, right? How many women are even represented on Wikipedia or Reddit? I don't ever go to Reddit because I get harassed. It's so hostile. Um, or, you know, you look at the social media network. So we talk about those things. And then we talk about what it means when you train a large language model on these kinds of data that represent the dominant hegemonic views that have lots of ableism, sexism, racism, homophobia, etc., etc., and then unleash it into the world. You can do lots of harm. You can misinform and do mass hate speech and mass kind of radicalization, et cetera, especially when you combine it with, with social media networks. And we also talk about what it means when these kinds of models generate coherent text. They sound to you like they're coming from another person or something like that. And when they do, for instance, machine translation, you get really coherent text that sounds grammatically correct, but it might be totally wrong. So there was this example of a Palestinian guy writing good morning on Facebook Translate, and it was translated to attack them, and he was arrested, right? He was later let go, of course. There are so many risks, but what is unbelievable is that just recently, Google came out with another paper with yet another huge language model. And they even cited our paper, which was so crazy. And then they're like, well, you know, um, it could be racist, but whatever. Hopefully somebody else will fix that, right? What other industry can say, you know, we haven't even tested if our drugs work on everybody. It might kill certain segments of the population, but oh, well. You know, here it is. The concerns that you were raising in this paper with your co-authors, it was really kind of the, the fundamental bread and butter of all ethicists involved in interrogating the consequences and impacts of artificial intelligence. You know, you'd done your literature review, you knew the field well. It, it wasn't necessarily controversial. So why did a dispute over this paper lead you to leave Google? Well, I feel like the paper was the icing on the cake I'd been on their radar for a long time. I feel like they were looking for a reason to get rid of me. Initially, what they said was some product teams are not happy with this paper and they have some issues. So there was a whole back and forth. They wouldn't even let me see who raised the issues and what those issues were. They just wanted me to retract it without even that conversation. So there was a whole back and forth. I asked more questions. They would engage with it. I wrote a six-page rebuttal. You know, it was a whole thing. What they asked later is for the Google authors to remove their names. I said, I'm happy to do that if you, A, have a conversation with me, B, tell me what the parameters of the research I can do here are and who gets to decide. And well, then I got disconnected from the corp machine and I found out from my direct report that I had apparently resigned because my manager's manager sent my direct reports emails saying that she has accepted my resignation and my manager didn't even know. He didn't know he was consulted and he's no longer there. He left Google. You accused Google of silencing marginalized voices. Mm -hmm. 
on what basis? Look at what they did. We wrote about how a particular type of technology impacts people in marginalized groups, and they silenced it in the most disrespectful way I can imagine. And that wasn't the first time that they silenced people in marginalized groups, right? I had been having problems at Google for a long time. So I stand by those words. You are viewed as an industry figurehead. You're a prominent leader in the field of AI ethics, a black woman leader in computer science. You being on the inside of big tech suggested to the world that Google was committed to AI ethics. Do you feel used? Yeah, definitely. Because now it's very clear what they want is to have these kinds of teams, have these kinds of people rubber stamping anything they're doing You might just write the ethical consideration section, but you're not going to say anything that fundamentally disagrees with the entire direction they're taking. And what they'll do is each time there is a proposed regulation or a set of legislators write to them, which happened after I got fired, they'll use these works and these teams as a defense. So they'll say, oh, we have plenty of Black people. They do this, 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 or we have published over this many works in ethics and artificial intelligence. We care deeply about this issue. So that's what they want to use these teams for. The biggest part of it is not even about, you know, the fact that we wrote about their bottom line or anything. For me, the biggest part of it here is racism and sexism. That's the biggest part of it. The details and events surrounding Dr. Timnit Gabru's abrupt termination from Google and what she describes as the tone policing she says she experienced inside the company as an outspoken black woman driving AI ethics research have really been thoroughly reported on and picked over elsewhere. And we'll include links on the Science Friction website if you want to dig into that further. Timnit wants to see increased legal protections for workers inside big tech corporations who decide to speak out on the potential harms of AI products that they're involved in developing. To make these harms more transparent before it's too late. Timnit, you just launched DARE, the Distributed AI Research Institute, and you are calling it a space for independent, community-rooted AI research, free from big tech's pervasive influence. What does community-rooted AI research look and feel like to you? Having people who are researchers, who are still embedded in their communities, who bring to their work things about their communities that they care about. So for instance, work on spatial apartheid that we are working on using computer vision methods and satellite imagery to analyze the evolution of spatial apartheid. People of European descent lived in certain neighborhoods and Everybody else had to live in townships and the budget was allocated accordingly. This is led by uh, Rasa Josefala, who is someone who grew up in a township. So this is somebody who is studying her own communities. We're working on another project on the impact of social media platforms on some diaspora communities that I'm from, right? Like the Eritrean diaspora communities, for instance. So... It means that, but it also means um, making sure that we do this research in a way that is not exploitative and rewards and acknowledges the knowledge that people bring who 
are not necessarily like PhDs or whatever, but they have so much knowledge on the impacts of these technologies on people of, of various communities. So for instance, um, Meron Stefanos, who is um, a very well-known refugee advocate, she had been doing this activism for 18 years. She rescued maybe 16,000 refugees even from um, human trafficking. I mean, people would call her from the Mediterranean from boats saying, you know, we're about to drown. Our lives are in your hands. So, you know, she's working with us with DARE and what I like is our ability to make sure that people are adequately um, acknowledged and compensated because the way in which we do this research in general, the world of AI research is so exploitative with the way in which data is gathered, the way in which people label data. Um, there was just recently this Time Magazine article on how Facebook treats its content moderators in Kenya, for instance. So I'm hoping to just have a different kind of space for doing this kind of work. I can't wait to see how DARE grows and, and what you do with the Distributed AI Research Institute. It sounds really exciting and, and a really positively disruptive approach to how AI ethics research is, is being conducted so far. So good luck. Thank you so much for joining me, Tim Neat. Thank you for having me. Dr. Timnit Gabru is founder of DARE, the Distributed AI Research Institute. A link to that and a whole lot of other interesting resources are up on the Science Friction website. Just search for ABC and Science Friction to find us and tell your friends, of course, about the Science Friction podcast. I will catch you next week. Have a good one. Take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.